Tad prayed in the book of Jonah. So if you would turn with me to that little book in your Old Testament called Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, a blue one. And uh, in those Bibles will be on page 451. And feel free to take that Bible with you if you need a copy of the Scriptures. Page 451. Last week, we launched our study through the book of Jonah. Jonah, if you weren't here, real quickly to recap or just to refresh. uh, Jonah was a prophet of God in the 8th century B.C., And God gave him an unprecedented assignment, an assignment that was unlike any assignment that had ever come before. He was sent as a prophet and told to go to the city of Nineveh, where he would be sharing God's word not among the people of God in Israel, but among the middle of the wicked Assyrians. Understandably, Jonah didn't want to go. So rather than obey God, he tendered his resignation and decided he'd run from God. He got on a ship and headed to the far westernmost edge of the known world at that time to a city called Tarshish. Now, Jonah, of all people, should know that you can't run from God. God sent a storm, rescued some sailors, and quieted the storm only when Jonah got what he deserved, which was the judgment of being thrown overboard and sinking in the Mediterranean Sea. Now with that, we'll pick up the story at the end of chapter 1, so verse 17. As we read it in just a moment, imagine being there, and the story we're going to capture as Jonah is, the prophet is sinking downward, deeper and deeper and deeper into his own mess, and the pagan sailors... Their praises are rising upward to God. Great contrast, completely shocking. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, before we spend the rest of the morning on chapter 2, We obviously should take a couple of minutes to talk about that verse. I don't know anyone who's been swallowed by a fish. I've met a few who smelled like they had been. I've seen a few of you disheveled enough that it would have been an appropriate question. But no former fish food folk have I met. What about you? I imagine you also know not a single person who would make this claim. Jonah 1 verse 17 causes an understandable raising of the eyebrows. It's it's atypical. Maybe you find it hard to believe. If so, I would say I can sympathize with you. It does seem rather absurd. Sometimes people will say today that this can't be real, and therefore the story must be a fable or a parable. Now, I get it. That does make the story easier to swallow. 
Now, a few people, and it's not many, but there's a very small strand of modern Christianity that has hypothesized that Jonah actually went to an inn called Great Fish. I'm not making this up. They say that Jonah was thrown overboard, he swam to shore, and then behold, there was an inn called Great Inn. And the spending three days in the belly of the fish means he lodged there for three nights. Frankly, that's even sillier than taking this literally. Because who would ever stay at a lodge called fish? That's just fishy. Now let me briefly give you four reasons why I would encourage you to take this as recounting an actual historical event. So four reasons why you should take Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 as describing something that literally happened. Number one, there is no hint in the book of Jonah that this is claiming to be anything but a historical account. There's lots of things in the Bible that aren't to be taken literally, but there are clues telling you that. This one has none of those. This tells a straightforward story of a literal historical event. Number two, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if God can send a storm to bring about judgment on Jonah, if God can in a moment quiet a raging sea, then it's not too much to think that God could transport Jonah via the fish express. Only a bias against the supernatural, a predisposition that you come to the Bible with, would cause you to think that that's impossible. Now, weird? Yes. Unlikely to happen again? Sure. Not at all ordinary? Of course. But impossible? No. Just because you would say, I've never seen something supernatural, doesn't mean the supernatural cannot happen. Now, number three, notice as you look at the verse that it is not sensationalized in any way. When we tell stories, don't we tend to embellish the details a bit? They tend to get better over time. But here in the book of Jonah, the fish is only mentioned in passing. The fish only comes up in three verses. And we have absolutely no details about the fish. Jonah was not into his fishiology. He doesn't tell us what the fish was. He says nothing of its size or its big scary teeth or its monstrous gills. For all the talk the fish gets outside the Bible, it gets almost no talk inside the Bible. It's only mentioned four times in three verses. That's it. If this was a fictional story made to evoke some kind of reaction, then we would very likely have a lot more salacious details about the fish. Now finally, and more important than all three of those put together, 
the most important reason why you should accept this as historical fact is that Jesus did. Jesus himself saw Jonah as a real person who really got swallowed by a real fish. Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 says, just as this is Jesus talking, just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Friend, if it was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. The Bible sees Jonah as a real person. And as we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, especially as we listen to Jesus tell us what He believes, that, as strange as this story is, is enough to say, okay, I take it at its word. Now, what follows that verse is a protracted prayer, taking nearly the entirety of Jonah chapter 2. Its length, relative to the book's brevity, communicates something of the significance of this experience for Jonah. Now, I'd like to read the whole prayer in a moment, and then go back and make a few observations about it with you. As we do so, I think we will see that believing it teaches us a great deal about despair and mercy and praise. It is a prayer of despair, mercy, and praise. Now, before we read it, it's important to get the timing clear in your mind. This drove me nuts most of the week until I finally came to understand exactly how this poem works. You'll notice when we read it in a moment that it moves back and forth from past tense to present tense. Now, for some of us, it's been a while since we were in English. If you need to turn to a neighbor and say, refresh my memory, go ahead. Past tense and present tense. And the psalm... The prayer has a cyclical pattern in which it's doing this, moving back and forth, past tense, present tense, past tense, present tense. When Jonah refers to his distress and despair in the past tense, he's talking about the moment from which he hit the water while he's sinking down to the bottom. But when Jonah talks in the present tense, He's talking about his experience inside the fish. Now, unless you get those distinctions clear in your mind, the prayer seems like a confusing mess. So past tense in the water, present tense in the fish. Here's why that's important theologically. The water is the looming threat of certain death and damnation. That's the symbolic meaning of the water. The fish, oddly enough, is God's kindness. It's God's salvation. The fish was not there to kill him, but to protect and shelter him. Now, as you think about that, I want to encourage you, I'll read this in just a moment, to allow yourself a moment of imagination. We've lost something, as many of us 
as adults, we don't ever picture ourselves in a historical moment recounted in the Scriptures. Would you allow yourself to feel something of Jonah's despair? As he's gasping for air, feeling certain of his death by drowning, would you allow yourself to feel his fear? He tried to run from God, and that doesn't work. God's verdict has been given. Judgment on Jonah is set. Or so it would seem. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land, meaning the bottom of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now we're going to get real serious for several minutes. So how about a moment of brevity first? The book of Jonah was originally written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for vomit sounds almost exactly like our word yak. How crazy is that? It's amazing. Let's think first together about despair. One key feature of this prayer is the intense degree of agony it describes. Many of us today like to go to the ocean uh, for fun. So in the summer, it seems like about half of us flee for San Diego, at least for a few days. And despite the fact that the ocean is resolved to throw you back out, you keep trying to go in. And we find sitting and watching it to be peaceful. But in the world of the Bible, that idea is totally foreign. You see, the sea in the Scriptures is most often not a picture of vacation, but of judgment. Jonah's words 
clue us in that that's what's happening. He uses phrases like into the deep, heart of the seas, flood surrounded me, waters closed in over me. These evoke the visceral feeling of drowning because that's exactly what was happening to Jonah. He's describing what it feels like to be near death in the water. Now, oddly enough, throughout the Old Testament especially, but even into the New Testament, the sea is used metaphorically to describe the torrent of troubles we face in this world and the terrors of God's judgment sinners ought to feel. Incidentally, this is why in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in Revelation 21, it says the sea will be no more, meaning in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more judgment, no more sin, no more troubles. The sea will be gone. But here in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is experiencing both the, the metaphorical meaning of the sea, and literally drowning in the sea. So imagine him on this boat with waves 10, 20, 25 feet tall, and he gets tossed overboard. No land in sight. Although he knew this was the judgment he deserved, no doubt he instinctively tried to grab something to hang on to, but there wasn't anything. So very quickly, Jonah began to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the abyss. The narrator of the book of Jonah has been very skillfully building to this moment. In Jonah chapter 1, it says that Jonah got this word from God, but instead he went down to Joppa. And then later it says he went down to the ship. And then it says he went down into the bottom of the ship. These are little morsels of chocolate to get the point of the book. It's telling us that Jonah's decision to disobey God's good word put his entire life in a downward spiral. Friends, that's always what happens. Now, some of us are more bullheaded than others, so we can go a bit further. But life running from God is life in a downward spiral. And the tension builds to the point that in chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah now is at the bottom of the ocean, and he says its bars have closed upon him. He's saying, I, I, I was as good as dead, swallowed up. Friend, can you relate? We should be very careful not to intimate That every experience of suffering and despair is caused by one's personal sin. 
That's not true. But some of those experiences are. Maybe an easy example that we could readily identify. If you're a college student in your senior year, you've been hired already for a great job pending your graduation. Amidst all the pressure of that upcoming graduation, you plagiarize on a major assignment. You get found out. Your class is an F. Your graduation is delayed. And the job was contingent on graduation, so you lose the job too. That experience would feel like a drowning, wouldn't it? And that is directly connected to your decision to sin. Now, most of life is just not that clear. It's not easy to put a one-to-one direct correlation between an instance of suffering and a causation. But some hardships are caused by our hard-heartedness. So friend, to be faithful to this story in the Scriptures, I must ask, have you been running from God? Are you sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into despair? Do you feel the crushing weight of your choices? Are the consequences of your refusal to submit to God's Word closing in on you? Does the thought of being in God's presence seem anything but comforting? Friend, these are common human experiences. If you live long enough, you will undoubtedly go through these kinds of experiences. If you're there today, then you are in an excellent position. You're in the ideal spot to experience the mercy of God. You see, when Jonah finally reached the end of himself, and that's often what it takes, isn't it? When Jonah finally hit rock bottom, then and only then did he turn to the Lord in repentant prayer. One scholar put it this way, Jonah was stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, and only then was deliverance possible. Church, just being down doesn't change things for Jonah. Prayer, while he was down, that's when things begin to change. That's when the Lord responds with mercy. And that's another great feature of this prayer, mercy. Brothers and sisters, Jonah deserved to die. The wages of sin is death. As unpopular as that idea is today. Jonah got what he deserved. He rebelled against the Creator. As Jonah sank in the sea, he feared permanent banishment from the welcomed presence of God. And as much as it ruffles our feathers, that would have been entirely appropriate. Because sin is cosmic treason. Last week we saw that God commands the sea, 
Because God made the sea. The sea can't say to God, I'm in charge. Guess what, friend? The same is true for us. We are not autonomous, independent individuals. We are creatures dependent on our Creator. And therefore, our Creator has every right to tell us what to do and to judge us when we don't. But God is a merciful God. God is a God of steadfast love, of, in the Hebrew, chesed. He always responds with mercy to the prayers of his repentant people. There is a prayer, 100% of the time, you are guaranteed to get a positive answer to. Always, every single time. It's a prayer for the mercy of God coming from the heart of a repentant person. Brothers and sisters, God is ready, able, attentive, and ever merciful to the repentant. And so of all things this psalm would teach us today, it would teach us to cry out to God in our distress. The very pinnacle, the high point of the prayer is the climactic cry at the end of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's experience of mercy was not because he finally came to his senses and changed his behavior and modified his life in such a way that now he was worthy of God. No, it's simply that he turned from his sin and God poured out mercy. One of the great miracles of this prayer and of every prayer is that prayer has a way of bringing us to a point of recognition to a self-awareness that salvation is of the Lord. Another feature of this prayer that's significant is that sometimes our cries get answered in stages. Have you experienced that? Sometimes our cries get answered in stages. Imagine with me, Jonah's in the water, he's sinking down, He can't see the top anymore. And in that moment, he finally responds and starts asking God for help. He's crying out to God to deliver him. Certainly, as Jonah was asking for God's help, Jonah did not have in his mind, God, would you please send a fish to eat me? And then even as he's in the belly of the fish and he's still praying to God. Jonah did not have in his mind, God, keep me in this sloshy, soupy, stinky mess for three days. Jonah was simply repenting of his sin and asking God for help. And God's means of deliverance was a fish. That's what God provided. The mercy that Jonah experienced did not come all at once. It came in a process. It came in stages. 
First and immediately, God welcomed him back into his presence, spiritually speaking. Second, God appointed the fish and it swallowed him up. Third, only later, did he experience the glorious yak. Church, we must learn to not regard partial answers to prayer as deficient. We must simply get it out of our heads that if God doesn't do everything we're asking in the time frame that we're asking, then somehow He's not listening or He doesn't care or prayers don't get answered. I would venture to say probably the majority of the time when you are praying big prayers, the mercy of God will come to you in stages just like it did for Jonah. One pastor I listened to this week put it this way, a fish's belly is better than weeds at the bottom of the sea, even if it's not yet Palestine. This prayer teaches us that even if the mercy of God comes in waves, we ought to rejoice. We can be thankful amidst partial answers. We can be thankful to God's gracious response to our cries for help. Even if the answer comes in a form we didn't want, we wouldn't have asked for, we wouldn't have picked. We can still shout psalms of praise even from the belly of a fish. Because all praise belongs to God, for He rescues repentant people from certain judgment. Even if that rescue comes a little bit, 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 then we die and every prayer is answered in full. That is enough. One more important aspect of this prayer would be helpful to consider. As you look at verse 9, he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving. Friend, this is a psalm, a prayer of praise, of thanksgiving. I went through and counted up this week the number of times there is a, a phrase or a concept in Jonah chapter 2 that is repeated in the book of Psalms. There are 12 of them. Now, don't miss the significance of that. As Jonah was drowning and crying out to God, so familiar was he with his book of Psalms as it existed at that time, that his cry of repentance and praise is just overflowing with the language of Jonah's Bible. Friend, you probably have several copies of the Scripture in your house. Maybe one in your car. Maybe one in your backpack. Maybe one in your office. You have it on your iPad. You have it on your iPhone. But all the access we have cannot do 
for the cries that must come from the heart in the moment of distress. It is worth immersing yourself so often in the Bible that it comes in your memory when you need it the most. That's what happened for Jonah. Jonah is praising God. He says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. That's the same thing the sailor said at the end of chapter 1. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friend, as Jonah thought about the heinousness of his sin compared with the holiness of his God, as his prayers rose up to God, he recognized that if he was to be a recipient of God's mercy, there would have to be a cost. I don't mean dollars. You see, this word sacrifice clues us in that Jonah, as he thought about what he needed, understood that in the context of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. If you're new to the Bible, this will be um, incredibly strange to you. But the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, is full of this. If I put it this way, Jonah, as he was sinking down and his prayers were rising up, Jonah didn't picture those prayers simply going up into the sky, into the heavens. It's not how he thought of his God. Jonah, no, he thought of his temple. Look at verse 4 and 7. You'll see that word used. Why? Well, Jonah knew that in the Old Testament, God's presence was uniquely manifest in a physical building called the temple in the city of Jerusalem. He had been seeking to run from God's presence there. But now as he thought about prayer, he was imagining this prayer going into the temple. Why? I realize we're down in some theological deep waters here. But this will be meaningful to you in a practical way. Jonah imagined his prayers going into the temple, number one, because that's where the manifest presence of God was. But number two, because that's where the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're not familiar with this, hang around afterwards and ask somebody sitting around you to tell you more. I'm sure they'd love to. Jonah knew if his sins were to be forgiven and if his God were to offer him deliverance, then it would take a sacrifice. For him to be welcomed back into the presence of a holy God, despite the heinousness of his sin, somebody had to die. So as Jonah imagined the Old Testament sacrificial system as he knew it, then he saw the temple, he saw the glory of God in the temple, and he imagined this very special box, and on top of that box, a precious mercy seat with angels above it. He knew that only when a sacrifice was made would the judgment of God be satisfied. And only when the judgment of God is satisfied would God's mercy be secured. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a, a Christian, then this language of sacrifice and a physical temple will seem outdated and archaic. And the thought of animals being killed and their blood being sloshed around to satisfy the wrath of God will brussle you in incredibly bizarre ways. And I'd have to tell you, some of what you're feeling is exactly right. You see, this is archaic. It is old. It is outdated. It is totally unnecessary now. Not because culture has become more sophisticated, but because what all of that in the Old Testament was about has been fulfilled. It's no longer necessary. The killing of an animal in place of a person always pointed forward to a better sacrifice that would be offered once for all. Securing the satisfaction of God's wrath and guaranteeing God's mercy forever. That sacrifice was none other than Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Friend, what Jonah couldn't fully understand was that he needed a sacrifice that was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus offered himself. Jesus took the judgment we deserve so that we can have the mercy we don't deserve. Friend, as the story unfolds throughout the rest of the Bible, we fast forward from the 8th century when Jonah lived, B.C., to the 1st century. Century in which God himself left heaven, came to earth, became a man lived a perfect life in order that one day on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, his body would be stretched out and nailed to a cross. He would be hoisted in the air. And then in a most grotesque sight, he hung naked. The object of scorn. That is not what any of us would have imagined we needed for deliverance. Any more than Jonah would imagine the fish would be his. But on that cross, Christ bore in his body the judgment of God for all people who would ever come to trust in Jesus Christ. And this means, friends, that as he went into the grave, the mercy of God began to flow. The judgment of God was abated forever. And then, three days later, that grave yacked him out.
Therefore, just like Jonah experienced the marvelous, scandalous, unexpected mercy of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can too. But it's found not by looking toward the city of Jerusalem in which your prayers go into a physical building and an animal must be sacrificed for your atonement. No, you look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where God's wrath is satisfied. His judgment is fulfilled. His love and mercy flow freely. If you're not a Christian, we would invite you to respond to this great gospel. If you believe this news to be true, you can go to God in prayer now. Confessing your sin, professing trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And then in that moment, everything changes. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Christ, have you made the mistake of walking with Jesus for a while only to begin running away again? If you're honest, has life felt like a continual movement downward? Friend, you can rest assured that God will be merciful to you yet again, irrespective of what you've done or how long you've been running or how far you got. Not because you deserve it or can somehow merit it through a changed behavior, but because God is a merciful God. And God always responds to the repentant prayers of His people. Come back. Let's pray. Father, I pray even now as I'm praying that times of refreshing would come for your people. I pray that they would be washed with your word. Pray that those who have been running from God would repent. I pray that those who think they are outside the bounds of where your mercy can run, that they would find you. I pray, Lord, that as a church, that we would not only be a people who are repentant toward you and experiential in the mercy that you freely dispense, but that mercy would overflow in such a way that mercy would mark the relationships we have with one another. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, our posture toward fellow Christians would be one of grace and mercy. That even in our truth speaking, we would do so as mercy receivers. Lord, we pray as we leave these doors in just a few moments and go out in a world full of people who are moving ever and ever downward. 
that we would be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, that we would be authentic in our holy living, and that we'd be humble and merciful in our disposition. We thank you that you are a merciful God. And it's in the sweet name of Jesus we say,